We're looking at Psalms 30 and 31 this morning and going to spend kind of really some in-depth time in Psalm 30 and then we'll move quickly through Psalm 31, kind of more of an overview, devotional look at that. Uh, but as I was thinking about this study, the kind of the phrase that came to my mind was joy and pain and that kind of triggered uh, memories of some, uh, some musical verses. I don't know if you're anything like me that you have like a, a lot of stored music in your head. Uh, more than you realize. And so this verse came to my mind, joy and pain are like sunshine and rain. And as I thought about that, I was like, where's that from? So I, I Googled it, and what did I find? But it was from an old rap song from the 80s I used to listen to. Uh, and so I listened to a little bit more of the song, and I was like, I don't know why I listened to this. Uh, but that phrase, joy and pain are like sunshine and rain, it actually is very true because in life there's sunshine and rain. Now, in some places there's a lot more rain than there is here, But we know what that's like to experience physically, days of sunshine and rainy days. And so it is, we experience that in a a spiritual way, an emotional way. We experience these days of great joy and we experience pain. We experience those both. And, And so anyone who tells you different is trying to sell you something. Anyone who says to you, if you just follow Jesus closely enough and this and that, it's going to be fine. It's going to be all joy. It's It's fake. It's false. It's untrue. All right. So the key as we move through Psalm 30 and 31, the the main thing I want you to take away is whatever your days look like, whether joyful or painful, whether they're the the mountains or the valleys to keep your focus on the Lord, because here's our tendency. Our tendency is for some of us when we're really joyful, we forget about the Lord. When things are going great, man, we don't think about him at all because we don't need him. Everything's going awesome. And so we're people that in the midst of that joy, we need to be reminded, okay, give God thanks. And I need to praise him and focus on him. Others of us, when we experience pain, what happens, that's when we forget about the Lord. Lord must not love me. Lord must not be with me. He's not around. He's forgotten me. He's not real. Any of those things. So whatever we're in, whatever we're like, whether it's joyful times or painful times, or really in in the kind of the Christian life, there's the joy we think of the mountaintop right? The pain, we think of the valley, but then also there's kind of a middle ground of kind of the mundane, what we might call the plains, kind of just the everyday. And all of those times of life is to keep our focus on the Lord. That's what we want to do. All right. So let's move into Psalm chapter 30. Here we have it, a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house of David. So commentators think that what's going on here is when David dedicated his palace kind of the place where he was going to live, a symbol of his authority as king over the nation of Israel, that this was the psalm that he wrote for that occasion. This is a psalm to celebrate that he's coming to that place. God has brought him up. God has fulfilled with that anointing that he had many years before, and now he's getting to become the king he was meant to be. So let's start with verse 1. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. Now, that word extol in the Hebrew, it means to lift up, to exalt, or to praise. We're familiar with that. Right? When we sing songs about the Lord, when we praise him for what he's done, that's this idea. Lifting up, lifting up exalting, praising. Now, what's interesting is when David says, you have lifted me up, it's a very, very picturesque word in the Hebrew. Okay, it's not the same as that word extol. And I want to talk about this because I think it's really a pivot point to this entire message. That phrase lifted me up in the Hebrew literally was used for the drawing up of a bucket from a well. So think about that for just a minute. David is using that imagery. So let's put ourselves in that place. What is God is speaking to us through his Holy Spirit using the instrumentality of David is that you and I are buckets. Now, here's the problem with a bucket. A bucket is no good on its own. A bucket needs to be filled with something and needs to be carried by somebody. 
That's what a bucket needs. So for you and I, if we would come to grips with this immediately, I know I'm asking you to think real early in this study. Uh, but if we come to grips with this fact is that you and I are this bucket at the bottom of a well. And there's that water there that God can fill that water up and then pull that bucket up. And so if we really come to grips with that imagery and say, I'm just a bucket, then God can do something with that. God can fill us. God can use us. But if we say, well, I'm a bucket on my own. And that's, that's really the problem that we have in this world. People are buckets and they want to fill themselves. They want to carry themselves. Can't be done. I want you to go in your backyard today, get a bucket out of the shed, set it there and see what happens. Doesn't fill itself. Now, on a windy day, it may be filled with sand, but again, that's not itself. <laughs> Something else is filling it. It's not going to carry itself. You are that bucket. I'm that bucket. We need someone above us to fill us and to lift us up, to use us. If we kind of go around and look, well, I'm a shinier bucket than you are. I have less rust than you do. I have this. I have that. That's not what a bucket is for. A bucket is only useful as it's filled and as it's lifted up. That's what the Lord wants to do with us. So we are those buckets that God uses. We only have purpose. Please hear me. A bucket only has purpose if someone fills it and uses it. A, a, a bucket just sitting there, and I know women can ingeniously use it for decoration, uh, but, but in reality, a bucket finds its purpose as it's filled and used. And that's for you and I. To ask the Lord, hey, fill me and use me. Now, here's the key. You say, all right, I'm, I'm with you, Steve. I want to be this bucket. How does that work? How does it happen? Humility is the key. Humility is the key. I've studied the scriptures a lot. I need to study them a lot more. But as I move through, you and you probably notice this, you see these themes. The theme of humility is all throughout the scriptures. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell because of pride. They wanted to be like God. They weren't happy being the buckets that they were created to be. They weren't happy to be filled and lifted up by God. They wanted to do it themselves, be filled themselves, be lift, lift themselves up. So humility is a key. Let me give you some verses if you want to be this bucket who's filled and lifted by God. Matthew 23, verse 12. This is what the, Jesus says. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, if you and I lift ourselves up, we put ourselves in this place, we put ourselves in a pedestal, then the Lord comes by and says, I have to knock you over. I have to do it. I have to dump out because what you put in the bucket's not gonna work. I have to dump you out so I can use you. But then if we empty ourselves, if we humble ourselves, if we say, I'm a vessel of dishonor, would you remove this from me so I can be a vessel of honor? Then the Lord comes along and says, now I can fill you up. Now I can lift you up. Amen. This is the scriptures. James chapter four, verse 10, Jesus's half brother says this, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He doesn't say humble yourselves, empty yourselves, and then he might think about lifting you up. No, it's a guarantee. James says, empty yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He will guaranteed lift you up. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but as the Lord's lifting us up in this well-called life, sometimes we kind of knock against the sides. <laughs> sometimes we get banged around a little bit. Maybe our, our bucket's a little more dented than we would like. But the fact of the matter is, God will use us. Peter, if anyone needed humility, it was Peter. Peter, who said, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. That's not for you. I've got you. And, no, and then the Lord said to him, get behind me, Satan. And then there's another time where Peter, night before Jesus' crucifixion, he says, these other 11 scumbags may depart from you, Jesus. But I never will. 
And then what happens? Jesus ran away, denied him. Jesus looks at Peter from across the courtyard. Peter humbled, realizes his, how, how far he's fallen, realizes his pride. He's humbled. What happens? He gets the Holy Spirit 40 days later, preaches at Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved, the church is born. What had to happen? He had to be humbled. So Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know what it is for God to resist you? If God resists you, you can't go anywhere. If God resists you, there's no way to move forward. And so instead of resisting God, instead of being proud, being full, humble yourself, empty yourself, then what's gonna do? He's gonna give you grace. He's gonna fill your bucket. He's going to pour into your life. And then all of a sudden, now that you've emptied yourself, okay, what's gonna happen is out of your innermost being are gonna flow those rivers of living water refreshing those around you. All right, so with this in mind, let's continue on in Psalm 30, verse one. It says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Now, this is most likely a reference to Saul and Saul's supporters. Remember David's life. David is on the run for a lot of his life. Right? He's got all these years where he's on the run from Saul. And then after he comes into his kingdom, then he still has all kinds of battles to fight. People who want to kill him. So all throughout David's life, he had foes. This is a reminder for you and I that as we serve the Lord, we will always have enemies. Always. Okay, if you and I think... Like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember, I'm dating myself and all these. I realize because I teach at a school and I realize every year those kids kind of pretty much stay the same age and I just get older. <laughs> and there's this greater gap year after year. But on Saturday, Saturday Night Live, there was this skit. There was like, I think Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And people like me. And sometimes we can think like that as Christians, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I study the scriptures enough. I'm a, like Jesus enough. People will start liking me. They won't. They didn't crucify Jesus because they liked him. And so the more that you and I become like Jesus, the more hostile certain enemies are going to be toward us. And so we need to come to grips with this truth that as we serve the Lord, we're always going to have enemies. Let me turn you or let me ask you to turn to Luke chapter six. Would you please turn to Luke chapter six for just a moment? And I'm saying this to you. I'm reminding you of this. I'm reminding me of this. Because if we're to be these buckets that God can use, we've really got to empty ourselves of false ideas. We've got to empty ourselves of these false expectations for these, these things of like, well, I thought life was going to be this way. I thought if I served Jesus, everybody was going to love me. No. This is the instruction Jesus gives to disciples, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Please understand that it's all given to people who have enemies. Notice, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. You and I, believer, are gonna have people who are enemies. And what are we, what's our job? Our job is to rip them to shreds on social media. Nope. Our job here is to do good to them. They hate us, we're to do good to them. They curse us, we're to bless them. They spitefully use us, we're to pray for them. That's the goal. So, so, so that's the instruction, but the underlying foundational presupposition is Jesus is saying, you're going to have enemies. You're going to have people who do these things to you. Why would I give you instruction about something that you didn't need to use? 
Continues on, to him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, do also to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those to whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive much back. Okay, so so here's the key of where Jesus is drilling down into. He says, how can you be my witnesses if you're like everybody else? How How can you show that the world that you're something different if you hate those who hate you and love those who love you? Everybody does that. He says, but if you love those who hate you, all of a sudden, the light bulb's going to go on for some people. Something's going to happen. They're going to see that. You're going to be these witnesses to me. Jesus continues in verse 35. Notice, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. How many times have we done something for someone who hates us? And we're like, well, I could have used a thank you for that. And Jesus says, why are you waiting for a thank you? He says, hoping for nothing in return. And then here's the key, though. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Here's the deal. We, we come to grips. Okay, I'm going to have enemies. Jesus has instructed me how to interact with my enemies. I'm going to do that. I'm going to hope for nothing in return. I'm not going to worry about those things. And then what's going to happen to me is I'm going to get a reward, not from them, not a thank you from them. I am going to get a reward from God. And notice what he says the reward is going to be. It's going to be great. It's going to be huge. It's going to be when in Ephesians, it says God's able to do abundantly above all that we could ask or even think. That's the kind of thing he's saying here. And then notice, and then he says, you will be sons of the most high. What's it going to be like when you and I get to heaven and God says, come here, son. Come here, daughter. You did what I asked you to do. And then verse 36 It says, therefore, be merciful just as your father is merciful. When you and I are merciful to those who are our enemies, we reflect our father. That's that's the highest thing that any child who looks up to their parent. So I I just want to be like my parent in this way. And God says, if if you're merciful, then what's going to happen is you're going to look like me. It's an incredible, incredible thing that we have here. All right, let's turn back to Psalm 30 because we've got ground to cover. Psalm 30, let's move on to verses two and three here. David writes, O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. So I think David's referring to a few things here. Maybe the many times Saul tried to kill David right? Threw spears at him and did all these kind of things. God spared him from that. Also, David fought many battles. David was not a pencil pusher. (laughs) David was not a guy and like the worst thing on David is like, hope I don't get a paper cut today. Uh, That wasn't David's life. David lived a rough and tumble life and God spared him from all those difficulties. And so the question for us to kind of ask and think through in verses two and three is how many times has the Lord spared us from death? How many times could we have died and the Lord spared us? Now, maybe for some of us, there's specific instances we could think, I should have died there and there and there. How many times though that we didn't even know about? How many times were we that close and God for his own purposes kept us from death? And so I kind of want to think about this because again, as we seek to empty our bucket of these false ideas, we want to remind ourselves of truth. 
And so we allow God to fill us with truth so we want to have a, a true understanding of death. So I want to turn you to a couple places. Would you turn, first of all, to Luke chapter 12? So Luke chapter 12. I'm going to look at something that Jesus says here. And it's, it's very similar to what he said in Matthew. And it, regarding death. Now, Luke 12. We want to look at verses 4 through 7 for just a moment. So Jesus says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Okay? So, he's, so here's the deal. If a person murders you, once you're murdered, they can't do any more to you. It's over. That's the end. And so he said, Jesus is saying, point blank, don't be afraid of those people. And then I would add to this, I think included in this is not only people, but don't be afraid of those diseases that can kill you. Don't be afraid of those accidents that can kill you. Don't be afraid of any of those things because for the believer, once your body is killed, that's the most they can do to you. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You've gone to be with him. So Jesus says, well, who are, should you be afraid of? He says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So, so he's saying instead of fearing death, fear God the Father who can bring eternal judgment on those who don't believe. That's what he's saying. This is a radical thing. And then he goes on, he gives an illustration. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, it's interesting in Matthew's gospel. So, so here in Luke's gospel, he says, not one of them is forgotten before God. In other words, God has a running tally of every sparrow in creation. He knows how many there are. And then in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. That not one of them dies without your father's consent. Okay, so if that's true, then we move into verse seven, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. It gets much easier for guys as they get older, right? Uh, the, the Lord can, that number gets lower and lower. Um, but the Lord has that. And he says, therefore, do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, if God keeps track of the sparrows, if not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the father's will, then who in the world are we to worry about our lives? Who in the world are we worry about how long we're going to live? Who are we to worry when our time comes? When we fear death, and we do, right? When we do, we're not trusting that the Lord has a count on us, knows where we are, can keep us alive if he wants to keep us alive. And so as we kind of think about those things, let's turn to John chapter 12 now. John chapter 12, looking at verses 23 through 26. Now, this is shortly before Jesus is going to die. And so, um, you know, there are people that are in town for the Passover and some of, these, some of these Greeks want to come see Jesus and it's not time for Jesus to see them. And, and, and so Jesus says this, starting in verse 23, he says, the hour has come that the son of man shall, should be glorified. Now, if you're familiar with John's gospel over and over again, people try to kill Jesus and it says his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. But now it's his time to come. Now, what is his hour? It refers to his crucifixion. But how is it referred to? It's as glorification. So please get that in your minds. That the death of Jesus Christ, everything Jesus did, he did well. But the death of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle. 
The death of Jesus Christ is his glorification. As a son of man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. As, as Moses raised the brazen serpent in the, in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. That's his glorification. So this is what Jesus is teaching to his disciples. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Something interesting to think about. A grain's greatest glory is to be buried and die. Because as that grain is buried, as it dies, it produces more. That's how a grain can be most fruitful is by dying, is by being buried. As God takes our lives and as we lay down our lives for him, as Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, we're going to see this play out. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Jesus is teaching us this. So Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. And so if the master's greatest glory is in dying, can it be that the servant's greatest glory will not be in dying? And so what Jesus calls you and I to is to be these empty buckets day after day who can be filled with him. And here's what he wants us to do. He wants us to die daily. Because as we die daily, then we can produce fruit. As we die daily, then he can fill us. As we die daily, what we're actually doing is we're practicing for the moment we step into heaven. Because as you and I die every day, then one day when the Lord taps us on the shoulder and says it's time to go, we're going to be ready. We've been practicing for this moment. This is the moment. But instead, as believers, so often we're just holding on to this life. I've got to hold on to it. I've got to hold on to it. I've got to hold on to it. When we're, we're holding on to, you know what it, it really is? It's like when you're, you're a kid and you go to the mall or something and there's all those little machines. When I, I'm so old, those used to be a quarter. <laughs> it used to be a quarter. Now it's like a dollar. And we just have this little plastic toy that is garbage. And the Lord says to us, would you let go of that little plastic toy? I've got something eternal for you. I just want to keep this plastic toy. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. I've got to have it. The Lord says, why don't you open up your hand? Let go of that. Let go of this and I'll give you something much greater. Let's turn back to Psalm 30. We got to move into verse four now. It says, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. Give thanks to the remembrance of his holy name. Now, the word saints in the New Testament is a very interesting word. It's related to the word for holy. It really means set apart ones. But the, this word for saints in the Old Testament is a different word in the Hebrew. And it actually means those who have received God's loving kindness or recipients of God's loving kindness. So please track with me here. You and I are recipients of God's loving kindness. Romans 5, Paul says, God has poured out his love by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. His love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is essential. You have a very real enemy, Satan. You have a re very real enemy, his demons. You have a very real enemy, this world. You have a re very real enemy, your own flesh. And all of those conspire together to tell you you're not loved. God doesn't love you. 
God doesn't really have good for you. He's not really been telling the truth about that. And so for us, we need to believe this. We need to empty out those false ideas, allow that truth to sink in that you as a believer are a recipient of God's loving kindness. If you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you haven't yet placed your faith in him, then, then you can be a recipient of God's loving kindness. God wants to pour out his love into your heart. And, and so really, this is what binds us together. You know, after services, we kind of look around. Maybe we're going to say, well, we all came here for Shirley cinnamon rolls. And that may be partly true, okay? <laughs> but the reality, what binds all of us together, people who probably never would have crossed paths for many of us, is because God has poured out his love into our hearts. That's what binds us together. The Lord has, has poured out his love into our hearts. He has adopted us into his family. We're sons and daughters of God. He sealed us by the Holy Spirit. And now we have a reason for getting together. We have a reason for fellowshipping together. Now, as we think about this, okay, immediately once we realize that, now the time comes to turn outward. Okay, because notice what David says. He says, sing praise and give thanks. This requires an outward focus. Everything that this world is about, it, it ignores God. And so it just kind of starts with man and like man can figure it out. And if man just kind of looks deeply inside man enough, he'll fix man. It's not going to work. So what has to happen is we must turn outward. We must focus on the Lord if we want to sing praise and give thanks. If you and I are people who don't sing praise, we don't give thanks. There's one problem, one problem alone. We're inwardly focused. We're just about ourselves. Okay, I, I, I love irritating my students at school. Uh, and one of the ways I love irritating them is I, I love teaching them something so much that they have no choice but to always remember it. And, and so one of the things I, I say to all my students is uh, we'll kind of come back to it over time in my Bible classes. I say, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I say, what's the second part? Love your neighbor as yourself. Good. I remind them of that. Did you know that those greatest commandments haven't been changed, haven't been amended, haven't been altered, that for you and I as believers, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbors, ourselves. How do we do that? By turning outward. You and I cannot obey what Jesus point blank told us to do if we're inward focused. Just can't be done. We have to turn outward. And so that's what God is calling us to do. Now, how can we do this? When we realize that we're buckets created by God, we have a purpose, he will lift us up. Now we can turn outward because we're not focused on, I've got to fill myself up. I've got to give myself purpose. I've got to lift myself up. No, God's going to do all that. I am free now to actually turn outward, to give, sing praise, give thanks, serve others. Verse five. For his anger, oh man, this verse is too much. So highlight this verse, underline it. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I would encourage you to keep looking at that verse, thinking about it. I'm going to move quickly through it. First of all, his anger is but for a moment. This is directed toward believers. Okay, God is angry toward believers. Every good parent has been angry toward their children. Okay, why? Because the, children, the child has done something that isn't in accord with how the parent wanted things done. Okay, so for more on this, you can, on your own, study Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us God chastens those he loves. That, 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 and, and we've all experienced this, because if you've ever had spankings, and I had plenty of them, uh, probably not as many as I should have, uh, but I've had lots of spankings. The fact of the matter is, Hebrews 12 tells us no chastening is enjoyable at the time. <laughs> 
in the midst of the spanking, you're not thinking, I think this is going to be good for me. I, I think this is really going to teach me the way I should go. No, everybody hates it in the moment, even the believer, but afterwards it yields, yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. That afterwards there's such this good that comes out of it. So please understand, God is going to be angry with us, chasing us in the midst of our sin. But notice, it's for a moment. But then what's next? His favor is for life. I will take life over a moment. Okay, his favor is for life. That word favor means pleasure, delight, or goodwill. So God has favor toward us in this life, but also God has favor for us for eternal life. So chastening for a moment, anger for a moment, favor for life, both in this life and the life to come. Then he continues on. He says, weeping may endure for a night. There will be weeping for the believer. There will be loss for the believer. There will be hardship and tribulation and all of those things. But notice how long it's going to endure. For a night. Not forever. For a night. For a season. But what happens? Joy comes in the morning. That word joy could be translated a shout of joy. That breakthrough, that overcoming, that joy comes in the morning, that weeping will be replaced by joy. I believe all this is brought together in Revelation 21, verse 4. I'll read it for you. John writes, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Now, as we move into verses uh, six and seven now, it says, now in my prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. Okay, so there's gonna be situations that when we're on the mountaintop, okay, we just came back from the retreat and we're like, it's gonna be like this forever now. And in my prosperity, I shall not be moved. Now, maybe you're not like me, Okay, but I have a tendency to be like Peter when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? You're having some time with the Lord and it's awesome. And Lord, what do you say we just kind of permanently camp out here? Lord, what do we just, I mean, Moses is here, Elijah's here. Let's just hang out in this moment forever. And then the father interrupts and says, Peter, shut it. Steve, I need, to, you need you to stop talking and, and go ahead and listen to Jesus and we got to come back down. So please understand that, that there's a tendency at the mountaintop to think it's going to be like that forever, but it's not because this isn't heaven. You're not going to stay on the mountaintop. God hasn't intended us to stay on the mountaintop. We're going to have to come down, right? But then in verse seven, Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. In other words, God is able to give us strength by his favor to do things that we never could have done on our own. God is able to strengthen us for what he's called us to do. But then he says, you hid your face and I was troubled. And so there's times, right, where it seems like God is far away. Maybe it was because of David's pride that God seemed far away. And so I want to kind of talk about this for just a moment. You know, if the Lord is with us, we're strong, right? If the Lord is not with us, then we're weak. That's reality. When we try to kind of be the bucket on our own, it's not going to work. And so I want to remind you of a key verse. It's Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I'd encourage you to explore that verse on your own. Think about it. But here's the key. We are his workmanship. That word workmanship means masterpiece or work of art or poem. It doesn't say you're your own workmanship. It doesn't say what's your 10 year plan? What do you want to become? What do you want to do? No, the scriptures tell us that we're saved to be his workmanship, that we belong to him. 
And so he can make us into whatever he wanted us to be. And he has special good works he has prepared that we have a choice, an opportunity, great freedom to walk in those. But if we have freedom to walk in them, we also have freedom to not walk in them. And so for you and I, it's to just make that choice to say, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to do with what I want to do with my life? Do I want to be a bucket who's self-filled, self-moved, even though that doesn't make any sense, even though it can't happen? Or do I want to be a bucket who's filled with God, moved to where he wants us to be? Because here's the, here's the key. God will empower you to do what he's called you to do. God will give you all the power you need to do what he's called you to do, but he will not give you the power to walk in disobedience. He says, if you want to walk in disobedience, you got to do it yourself. And so we see this clearly in Galatians. Paul talks about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. All of us can leave here today, right? Say, forget the Psalms. I'm going to do whatever I want. And we have that power within us to walk in the flesh. But if we leave here and say, I really want to do what God's calling me to do, we don't have that power on our own. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to bear that through the fruit of the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit. So, so the key is, if we want to do it ourselves, if we want to kind of be our own people, we have the power, we can do it. If we want to do what God wants us to do, he has to give us the power. We have to depend on him and be those workmen uh, that, that he empowers for his glory. All right, let's move on to verses 8 through 10 now. He says, I cried out to you, O Lord, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will, I, will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? Hear o, hear, o Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, be my helper. Now, so David cried out for help. The Lord helped him. And so we can look at these verses and say, well, it just seems like David doesn't want to die. You know, maybe David's scared of death, all those kind of things. That's not really how I take it. What I take it from these verses, how I'm going to seek to, to understand it, is that David wanted to stay alive to praise God. That David wanted to stay alive to praise God and share God's truth. And the reason why I'm kind of taking that angle on things, it really reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Philippians. I encourage you to read often Paul's letters to the Philippians. And what happens there is Paul's in, under house arrest in Rome. Paul's a guy who wanted to go do on missions and do all these things. And he did those things, but then he was arrested and he's on house arrest. It must have been a real struggle for Paul. And so Paul kind of was wrestling with this. And this is what Paul said. I'm thinking about it. And for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And to depart and be with Christ is far better but he says to stay here will mean fruit to your account and I can minister to people and help people. And he says, like, I don't know what I can choose because I'm conflicted. And so Paul, said, Paul decided on, Paul landed on, as long as I'm here in this body, I'm going to be on mission. As long as I'm here, I'm going to do what God called me to do. As long as I'm here, I'm going to share God's truth. I'm going to praise God. You and I, like heroes, whether those are male heroes or female heroes, we love these heroes who in the midst of the fight continue to fight, who finish the mission. We don't read books about people who went AWOL. <laughs> we don't read books about how people who were cowards, who skipped out. That's not inspiring. And so it is for you and I. As long as we are a sparrow that God keeps alive, as long as God has left us here, let's stay on mission. Let's do what God has called us to do and bear that fruit he has called us to bear. Let's continue on verse 11. It says, you have turned, I'm sorry, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing and have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Now, as I was thinking about this verse, what immediately came to my mind, this mourning into dancing, it was like from a funeral to a wedding. 
Imagine, you know, like on one day you go to this funeral and immediately afterwards you change clothes and you're going to a wedding. Think about the difference between those two, the difference between a funeral and a wedding. But then as I began to think about it a little bit more, I thought, you know, this is actually what it's like every time a believer dies. Every time a believer dies, the people on earth are mourning the loss of that person, but that person is at a wedding feast. That person is where they wanted to go. So there's that juxtaposition we can understand that as a funeral is taking place on earth, that very person that we're mourning over is rejoicing in heaven in that moment. And so for us to realize that, that this is what God is going to do, that he's going to take our mourning, whatever mourning that we have endured in this life, and then the moment we get to heaven, it's going to be like waking up from a bad dream. That is going to be over, never to come back again and to enjoy fellowship with the Lord forever. Verse 12. He says, To the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. And so this is an attitude of David's praise and thankfulness. They continually thank the Lord, praise the Lord. He continually meditated on the Lord. And, And so again, this is, this is a common thing. I've said it lots of times, and I'll say it again. If you and I are people who don't give thanks to the Lord, if we don't praise the Lord, it's because we're not focused on the Lord, okay? He, we, we need to get back to the scriptures. A great antidote for being unthankful is to just start reading your Bible. Just start reading your Bible and see, oh man, God's, God's kind of like done a lot of things, right? God's done a lot of things, a lot of amazing things. And so as we meditate on him, we'll be these people who are praising and thanking him. All right, let's move quickly through Psalm 31. Just kind of give some, some application as we move through. We'll take it in chunks. So Psalm 31, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me into your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. So uh, the, this for us, what I would take from verses one and two application, put your trust in the Lord alone. Put all your trust in the Lord. If you kind of think about your life as kind of this poker game, put all your chips in the middle for the Lord. No plan B, no escape route, no parachute, none of that stuff. Just put all your trust in the Lord. Completely trust him and let's see what happens. See what he might do. Verses three through five, for you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net for which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And so really what David's asking for, he's asking God to lead him, asking God to guide him, asking God to deliver him. This is what we're asking for, right? And so it's, again, it's an outward focus. Lord, I don't want to lead myself, guide myself, direct myself. It's not where I want to go. I want you to be the one to do these things. Now, as you may have noticed there in verse five, it's interesting. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. Jesus actually quoted this on the cross. When Jesus was about to die, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Really interesting that Jesus quoted from this Psalm. Now, verses six through eight, I've hated those who regard useless idols. But I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the, of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. 
Okay, so in the midst of all that, David chooses to focus on the fact that God has continually, um, you know, removed these things from his life, that he's continually blessed him. He's choosing to rejoice and be glad in the Lord. If you sit down today, you could make a list of all kind of the bad things that have happened to you, right? And you could choose to just focus on those, meditate on those, and become an angry, bitter, hateful person. You could do that. You can go home then today instead and say, you know what? Forget all that nonsense. I'm going to go ahead and just focus on all the good things God's done in my life. I'm going to choose to focus on all these, all the forgiveness that I've received and all the friendships I have and all the blessings I have and all the memories I have. I'm going to focus on those things. And all of a sudden you're going to be a completely different person. You get to choose, right? You get to choose what's going to go in your bucket. Now, verses 9 through 13, he says, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I'm a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors. I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I'm forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many fears on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. Okay, so this is kind of a, a dark section here. David's really struggling through some things. But what I really want you to focus on is David is admitting that so much of this is caused by his sin. He's, his sin caused this. So here's a reminder for you and I. Our sin will cause us grief and pain. Okay, And it never seems like that on the front side. Satan didn't come to Adam and Eve and say, hey, guys, I I want you to fall and it's going to be really bad for you. It's going to be horrible and you're going to lose relationship with each other and lose relationship with the Lord and get kicked out of the garden and every sin's going to be in the. He didn't say any of that. He says, man, life's going to be so much better if you sin. It's going to be great. You're going to know new things. It's going to be wonderful. So sin looks good on the front side, but it causes grief and pain. Okay, so please remember that. But here's also the key. Don't stay in that. When you as a believer commit sin, and you will, because the scripture says anyone who says he does not sin is a liar. Okay, you're going to commit sin as a believer. Don't just settle into it. Don't just say, well, that's how I'm going to live now. That's kind of the things I'm going to do. Or, well, I'm just too far gone. Don't do that. Okay, when you find yourself in sin, repent. See, that's what David did. In the midst of this, who is he talking to? He's talking to the Lord. He's crying out to the Lord in the midst of his sin. He's calling out to the Lord and, and the Lord, you know, to say, Lord, hey, can you, can you help me? Lord, can you give me forgiveness? Can you deliver me? That's very, very, very important. You know, because we're going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. But do you know what? If you do a research into David's life, David was really messed up in a lot of areas. David did a lot of things wrong. David committed a lot of sins, and yet God used him so greatly. How many lives have been blessed by David? How many people have been encouraged by David? So if God can use a guy like David, with all the messes that David committed, God can use you. God can work in the midst of your fallenness, your failures. Come to him. Ask him for that forgiveness so that you might see how he can work in your life like he worked in the life of a guy like David. All right, verses 14 through 18. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. 
Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. And so really what I get from these verses is continue to trust the Lord in spite of difficult circumstances. We covered that a lot already. But as, as God is bringing you up, up that well, and he just seems to be banging you against the sides. It seems like it's just kind of being buffeted by all these things. Continue to trust in him. Anybody can say they trust in the Lord when it's all lazy boys and lollipops. When life is easy, oh yeah, I'm trusting the Lord. Are you? Are you just being comfortable? For us to trust the Lord, it's in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And remind yourself, also as we see here, the Lord always makes a distinction between believers and unbelievers. Right? He says that here at the end of you know, verses 17 and 18. He, he realizes that the end that he has is not the end that the unbelievers have. I would encourage you to go back sometime and read the book of Exodus. And about how God poured out the plagues upon unbelieving Egypt, but he didn't pour out the plagues upon his people. So remember that God makes a distinction. God's doing something different. Now, again, if you're in the wrong camp, if you're an enemy of the Lord right now, again, you can lay down your arms, immediately come to him, submit to Jesus Christ, and he will adopt you into his family. Verses 19 and 20. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. And so this is really speaking about the Lord's deliverance um, from trouble that he has for believers, how he delivers them over and over again. We see that in the life of Jesus, how he delivered him from death over and over again until it was time for Jesus to be glorified on the cross. Uh, but also, I, I want you to think about that also in the eternal state. Look at verses 19 and 20 on your own. Read it on your own and think about this, that God one day, a day that you don't know, is going to take you to his pavilion. That he is going to take you. You're going to enter the heavenly courts. That, that you are going to be in that place and no evil, no sin, no enemy can touch you ever again. It's an exciting thing to think about. But we are so earthbound, we are so consumed with filling up our buckets with the mud of this world that we're unwilling to be cleansed buckets filled with the Spirit so that we can focus our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen, the things above, are eternal. Verses 21 and 22, Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Okay, now, just as a reminder here in verses 21 and 22, as believers, we're gonna feel cut off sometimes. As believers, we're gonna feel like we're all alone. As believers, we're gonna feel like the, the, the heavens are bronze and none of our prayers are getting through, but it's not true. The Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. The, the Lord may take us through difficult seasons, through valley times to grow us, to strengthen us, to mature us, but he has never left us, nor will he ever leave us. Verses 23 and 24. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. 
All right, so if we want to be courageous in him, we want to be strengthened in him, we want to walk with him, what does it say to do? It's hope in him. Receive that love. He's, he's poured out his love into you and then be hope in him and then you'll be courageous and he'll strengthen you till the end. All right, we'll stop there for today. Lord willing, pick up in Psalm 32 next week. But I want to leave you simply with this, a reminder that both joy and pain will come into our lives. Unavoidable. And through it, though, what we're called to is keep our focus on the Lord. But this mix of joy and pain will not last forever. The day is coming and the day is coming soon when pain will be a distant memory and joy alone will reign on that everlasting morning.